Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. to our TIFF Talk. I'm Karen Gerth, and I'm here with my colleague, Wendy Prophet, and we have the pleasure of having Dr. Melvin Simeon with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Thank Simeon. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you. Uh, before we get started, I want to introduce Dr. Simeon. Uh, he is a dual board-certified gastroenterologist and internal medicine physician as well as an advanced therapeutic endoscopist who believes in utilizing his unique skill set to optimize his patient's health and well-being. After graduating from LSU Medical School in Louisiana, Dr. Simeon completed his internal medicine residency at Methodist Hospital in Dallas. During his residency, he became fascinated with the digestive system and therapeutic interventions, where he then completed a GI fellowship at UTMB in Galveston, Texas. He continued on for a sub-fellowship in advanced therapeutic endoscopy, under which uh, he mentored with a mentorship in world-renowned experts and GI associates in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Simeon currently practices at Baylor Scott & White Digestive Disease Clinic in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you kindly for that uh, great introduction, and uh, I'm looking forward to giving this presentation. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in and get started. Um, Dr. Simeon, if you can just uh, start off by telling the audience and everyone watching, you know, what is GERD and, um, you know, what are some of the atypical and typical symptoms that you All see? All right. So um, GERD as a word means so many things to different people. And I think it's very important that we use a common language so that way we talk about GERD in the way it's meant to be talked about. For patients, oftentimes when they're presenting to the clinic, they will talk about GERD or reflux as a diagnosis that was given to them, but maybe do not have the right words to describe what they're having. A lot of times they have classic words like, I have heartburn, I have burning, um, I feel that um, there's a fire in my belly. Um, sometimes they will discuss nighttime awakening with acidic contents in the mouth or on the pillow. Um, but a lot of times we get patients who have reflux who do not have those typical symptoms. Uh, more atypical presentations, but still that could be reflux related are patients who have chronic cough, patients who have new onset shortness of breath or asthma-like symptoms patients who have the sensation that things are stuck in the esophagus, like we call that dysphagia or globus sensation, um, patients who have pain upon swallowing, or sometimes simply people that have 
uh, intractable nausea, vomiting, and or regurgitation of undigested contents, all of these things can be reflux-related events. Dr. Simeon, you were talking to us about uh, lifestyle changes and modifications and how that um, can help GERD, but what about those people um, that those types of modifications are not, uh, that they don't work? But what, yes. what for them? So in general, um, the population of patients where lifestyle modifications such as weight loss, dietary measures, and or um, nighttime routines do not improve symptoms, um, that population of patients is generally fairly small. And of the, all of the GERD sufferers, it's probably about 20% of total patients. But in those patients who are true overproducers of acid, are those people who are symptomatic despite their best efforts in doing um, those measures. We encourage um, a four-week trial as per the recent uh, guidelines of a PPI. We are cognizant of the fact that everyone who starts a PPI may not respond to a PPI, and that is because of the binding of the drug to those individual receptors on each patient. And that's why we like to start with a medication that we have experience with. I, in my practice, tend to use a lot of pantoprazole or protonics. However, if after four weeks of adequately taking a medication, meaning 30 minutes before breakfast or upon awakening, not taking it with other medications, making sure we're fasted and waiting to take other medications, food and our drink afterwards, um, I'd switch to another medication sometimes, especially if I feel that they've gotten good response to the medication, 50% or better improvement, and they just need a little tweaking, I might try a different medication in the same class. And I have found in my personal practice that that changing of the medication oftentimes will help patients better. Not every medication is intended to work for every patient. And that's why we have different formulations of the drugs. So it's very important. Um, I then will sometimes use, be a little bit more aggressive and block acid from two sites. So instead of just a proton pump, I also will give a histamine blocker. So that's the Pepsid, um, the um, ranitidine, famotidine, and uh, all of these other medications. I will try that as a nighttime adjuvant, uh, that way we adjunct so we can get both uh, full coverage of both sites of acid. Um, if that fails, now we finally get to the part where I'm sure we're gonna talk about it, um, the non-surgical uh, interventions of reflux, as well as the surgical uh, of interventions of reflux and how we have that conversation. Yeah, perfect. That, that's a great lead into uh, um, you know, the tests that are used to diagnose GERD and, and what are some of the things that, that patients or people should do if you know, medication's not working anymore. Yes, ma'am. So in our practice, when we built our reflux center, I think we thought about it from a more global perspective. So when the patient comes to us with heartburn or they, or they come in saying they have GERD, how do we objectively know that? And I think in our practice, what we have done differently and what has really allowed us to be successful is that we have a very standard approach to all patients. All patients, if they come in with these symptoms, get these three tests. And without it, we cannot further the conversation because we have found that many times patients who have reflux symptoms may not actually be true acidic reflux or the GERD we're talking about. So GERD is an all-inclusive term 
but it does not necessarily mean what we think it means. And so I, I, I'm very uh, cognizant of that. And I make sure that with all patients, we get three things. And those three things include an upper endoscopy with pH testing, because we want to objectively know how much acidic events are they having, how often, when does it happen, relationship to symptoms, relationship to food. Very, very important. Number two, all patients get a barium swallow because I want to look at the functionality, how the hiatal hernia that they have plays with their swallowing. Is it a sliding hiatal hernia? Is it a fixed hernia? Is it a paraesophageal hernia? Is there any motility or movement related problems of the esophagus? And can we actually see reflux or regurgitation of the barium back into the esophagus, which justifies their symptoms when they say, I'm having this happen, I wanna see it. Um, and then the third thing that we do with all patients in anticipation of discussing with them which procedure they would be the best candidate for, we do a manometry. And that allows us, with impedance, that allows us to really see the size of the hernia, the motility of the esophagus, and then also the reflux of events back into the esophagus, which will change the impedance. So it's just a third test that really allows us to conclusively say, do we see a patient has GERD, meaning they have evidence of acid or erosive disease plus symptoms objectively, or do they have NERD where they have reflux symptoms, but they do not have objective evidence of erosive changes in the esophagus and are positive testing on the, ref the pH testing. And so I think we treat those patients differently and it's important to know all of those three test results before discussing. Do you have GERD, NERD, functional dyspepsia, or reflux hypersensitivity? And those are a bit different. Thank you so much for that explanation. And so once you, you've done these tests um, and you know, you've determined whether it's GERD or, or the NERD, and, um, what options are now available? Uh, what are some of the, uh, the surgical options that are available? Yes. So um, surgical options, uh, typically we have three surgical options which are available to patients. Uh, you have the classic Neeson funduplication, which is the procedure in which we do a full 360 degree wrap after reduction of the hernia. Uh, and that is appropriate for a subset of patients. We have a second test uh, in keeping with the full wrap, which is the Lynx procedure. And that is an implantable magnetic device which augments the sphincter of the esophagus after reduction of the hernia. Uh, and that again is also appropriate for a subset of patients. We have the toupee procedure, which again is a partial wrap. It's a 270 degree wrap after hernia reduction. And those three are the surgical options and could very well be the right procedure for all patients. But I'm very much aware that not one size fits all approach. Um, and I, I try to have the discussion and present all four options. And the question that hasn't been asked yet, but we will talk about is also the non-surgical approach where I, as an endoscopist, may be able to do something that does not involve surgery, which will still help a patient uh, get over their reflux symptoms. Thank you. 
And Dr. Simeon, we did have a couple of questions that were posted that I wanted to make sure uh, you could address for us. John sure. was asking about chest pain and if that could be caused by GERD. And I, you did cover that a bit uh, when you were discussing symptoms. Do you have your patients discuss what it feels like? You know, obviously chest pain can encompass a lot of different sensations. Is there anything that you you commonly hear about people uh, discussing when they when they describe their that symptom? Well, uh, John, I want to thank you for that question. That's an uh, excellent question. And um, we see all the time atypical non-cardiac chest pain. And absolutely, that can be a symptom of reflux. Um, I think what's important uh, when we talk about chest pain is that we want to know the relationship of chest pain. Is that chest pain related to activity or is that chest pain associated with eating um, or post prandial post after we've eaten. And I think that relationship sometimes will help us tease out, should we be really sending that person to a cardiologist first? Should we be sending a patient to a respiratory ther a therapist or pulmonologist? Or should we as a GI doctor um, really work this atypical presentation? And that workup still goes back to what I've stated before. I do not veer in the workup. And I think this same patient would be treated in the GERD umbrella that we're talking about. And we would do an upper endoscopy with reflux testing because we wanna see, do they have erosive disease, any ulcers, any reflux damage, any Barrett's esophagus, any evidence that there was reflux there. We want to see how often they're having this reflux. And if they have a chest pain, we can correlate that perfectly with the Bravo pH testing with the reflux event at that time. So is it a positive association? We do the barium, because it maybe have spasms or dysmotility of the esophagus. And we also do the manometry because maybe they have a spastic disorder that's contributing to the chest pain like jackhammer, nutcracker esophagus or something of the like. So excellent question. Absolutely can be a symptom and we definitely do not ignore that symptom. Very good, thank you for that. Uh, we also had Lauren asking about LPR. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it is? And then I believe you're gonna talk about uh, another anti-reflux therapy that you offer and maybe how um, LPR can be treated by the TIF procedure as well. Right, so LPR um, is a diagnosis that's oftentimes used by ear, nose and throat specialists because oftentimes these patients will present um, with the bitter taste in the mouth or some kind of bad breath, we call it halitosis, or maybe these are people that are having reflux events that they feel, and oftentimes they will undergo a laryngoscopy or maybe a direct endoscopy by ear, nose, and throat, and then they will be labeled with this term LPR, which is laryngopharyngeal reflux. As endoscopists, as GI providers, I don't know if we necessarily believe that term so much, because we want to know if it's refluxing that high up, we should see reflux damage in the esophagus. So we want to still do our own endoscopy so we can really rule out, is it erosive disease? Is it NERD, which is basically non-acidic disease or is it regurgitation? And the workup of that is a little bit different and it also tells us, should we be offering an anti-reflux procedure to this patient? Or do we really need to be talking more of a motility related process? And so I think it's very important for us to always take that diagnosis and really work that up. 
if it really is from reflux, the LPR, then again, they should be responsive to the PPI, the reflux medication. So if they're not, that's when after a four-week trial of adequate therapy, we would proceed with the workup. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, Karen, back to you. Thank you, Wendy. And um, so, so now that we're at that point, um, let's talk about um, your other offering, like Wendy had, had noted, the TIF procedure. Can you um, give us a brief overview of the TIF procedure, side effect profile, its approach, repair? Yes. So the TIF procedure of our four anti-reflux procedures is the only procedure which is a non-surgical approach in the right selected patient. And when we identified those patients, obviously they should have already undergone the workup, which we discussed, which is the EGD with reflux testing, the barium swallow, the manometry. The TIF procedure is not a procedure that's for all patients. So we need to be very selective with who we offer it to so we have the best chance of success. And that's really what we're looking for. Our goal in doing the procedure is we want to restore the barrier function of the lower part of the esophagus and stomach complex, which we call the EG junction. Many times patients who have reflux that are not responsive to medical therapy are because of the fact that they have a large hiatal hernia or a paraesophageal hernia. Specifically, that's the one we're talking about. And the testing will reveal how large that is. We want to know, is there any motility component that there's some movement disorder that might be part of this? And so the manometry will tell us that. So the TIF is a device which we insert the endoscope through the device and pass it through the upper esophagus into the stomach at which we retroflex the device so that we now have access to the site of where the hernia. It's important to remember that if we're doing a straight TIF without the help of a combined approach, that the hernia is less than three centimeters in size, ideally less than two centimeters better, and we want to make sure that the heel grade or the opening, the width, the diameter of the hiatal hernia is less than a heel grade two. Those are the ones where we have a better success rate of getting a full reduction. Our goal is we want to restore the valve length to at least three centimeters in length. And that has been shown to really restore the barrier function and decrease reflux symptoms. We also want to make sure that we're doing our wrap adequately. And that means that we're doing a 270 degree to 300 degree wrap. And that way it's tight to the scope, but not um, uh, obstructive to passage of the scope. The other thing that we do after we identify our landmarks is that we use on, as, on average about 20 fasteners to then secure or oppose the esophagus to esophagus or wall to wall so we get that, um, that barrier function that we're looking for. The procedure when done in expert hands can be done easily, comfortably in under 30 minutes. Uh, we are routinely doing our procedures at our program in about 25 minutes. Um, uh, and that's from start to finish. Um, we are um, in less experienced hands. Um, it can take sometimes up to 40 minutes, but it should be well under 60 minutes. The things that we tell patients to watch out for, so after you've had your procedure, the following day in our practice, we have you admitted overnight and we will get an upper GI series to be sure that the lower GI junction is patent and that the swelling, edema and such are where food and liquids can pass. We tell people that they will likely experience some trouble swallowing in the first eight weeks. 
And that's because we want the edema, the swelling all to go down and have to relearn how to eat. We no longer take big bites. We chew our food well. We take our time when we eat and we take liquids when we eat because we want those foods to go through this narrowed diameter now. You no longer have the wide opening. It's very small now. Um, but that's what we want to decrease reflux symptoms. As long as patients follow these instructions of the chewing the food well and taking liquids with meals, by eight weeks, when we see them back in two months in the clinic, all of the patients we have done TIF now, whether straight or combined, um, we've had 100% so far in one year time that we've been doing this of clinical success. And um, these patients are off of their acid reflux medication within about four to six weeks. Uh, sometimes as soon as two weeks after the procedure, they already are off. All patients by eight weeks are off. Very little need for any medications unless they're cheating on the diet. So the one last thing I would say is this procedure works if you follow the rules. If you go back to old ways where you're eating and consuming whatever you like with all your food triggers, then no procedure will help you. And it's important that we, it's a lifestyle change. And as I said earlier, it's a mindset. If you do those things, this procedure is very successful. That is great, great recommendations and words to live by. Uh, it is a lifestyle change. Can't go back to your old ways of eating. Um, wanted to, a question that we always get is, um, you know, we get, uh, I have a hiatal hernia. So what do you do for those patients that, um, you know, have a greater than you said, two centimeter hernia? Uh, what does that look like? Uh, yeah. So, um, whenever we're playing in the sandbox, so to speak, we never, uh, want to keep patients to ourselves. There always is someone that can help us. And in this particular situation, we call our surgeon colleagues. They've been doing reflux procedures forever, right? We're not trying to take procedures from them. We want to complement what they do. And so when we have a patient who has a hiatal hernia that's more than two centimeters, or they have a heel grade three to four, um, we tell them that uh, we would involve a surgeon. And they always ask why. The reason is that we need the surgeon to laparoscopically reduce the hernia for us and either place mesh or not to reduce the hiatus. So that way, when we then secondarily go in to do our TIF, as we just described, we have a heel grade two or less, we have a reduced hernia, and therefore we can re um, further reduce another three centimeters to create that valve length. By involving the surgeon, uh, depending if you have a good surgeon partner or not, it will add an additional 60 minutes of total time to the procedure time on average. For a total procedure time in our center, we're doing them from 70 to 90 minutes total time involving surgeon and endoscopist, same OR setting, same hospital stay, one day in the hospital, discharge following day. Uh, we've had tremendous success. And so um, when we're doing the workup, and we're deciding where we're doing it, straight TIF, just endoscopy lab, or we need a surgeon partner, that workup is imperative. It tells us who will be better suited for combined, who will be better suited for straight. And the beauty is that the procedure, whether they reduce it or not, is not impaired by the TIF. The TIF uh, can be done after they have a surgical intervention, if they want to delay it, 
It can be done even sometimes before, but we do not try to do before, obviously. We really wait till after the hernia is reduced and all of those things. And um, usually we have had, uh, well, not usually, so far, 100% clinical success. Good. And, and I, um, I know you touched on it a little bit, but could you just kind of touch again on uh, what, what is the post-op diet like? We get that question all the time. And, you know, can patients resume their normal activities once they have the TIC procedure done? Yeah. So um, diet is, again, important. We started the conversation off with diet. We end with diet. So I think it's one of those things that is not discussed enough. And we have a very strict protocol in our practice. But I think this very strict protocol has helped us have the success we've had. Because it takes four to eight weeks for a person to make a habit. And they want to go back to eating the way they are. But if you have it written down for them, you tell them what can happen if they do not follow the rules. We've had uh, a lot of buy-in. So we generally uh, will have the patient uh, in the first three days to five days, up to a week, on a liquid diet only. Following that, we then have them on two to four weeks of a soft mechanical diet. Nothing that will become lodged in the esophagus like dried goods, so breads and things. We always tell them take it with liquids. Meats, we really try to avoid unless it's soft. So white flaky fish, uh, seafood, um, chicken, turkey, those things are easier to pass than an, our beef or pork. Um, so we are always cognizant of the size, the particle size, because remember, we're reducing the hiatus. We have a narrowed junction. So again, I always give the lecture because people say, well, what size? The thing I tell patients that helps and um, is when they look at the food, if they were to put it in the palm of their hand, if a child who is self-feeding could not eat that food, then you cannot have it. You need to go smaller than that. And so that's a way for them to visually no, is this too big a bite? And by doing that, uh, we have had just tremendous success. They, they really understand that. And um, I think after that eight week mark, so now they come in the post-op follow-up and they have told me, hey doc, I've been following the diet. Nothing has happened, no dysphagia, no pain with swallowing, no vomiting of food, no reflux. Then I give them the clear card that says at eight weeks, hey, you can go back to your normal diet Again, keeping in mind the reflux diet, the foods which are triggers, we still avoid those. We still keep the lifestyle modifications. Most patients have had tremendous success and we're following them up to one year now and we've not had any recurrences. And even a lot of patients say they like the diet change because it has forced them to lose weight. We are routinely are hearing and seeing from patients who have followed our protocol, they've lost within the two to eight weeks some procedure to follow up, up to 15 pounds because their lifestyle change has happened. That's wonderful. And, and I was going to ask, you know, what, what are some of the things that your patients enjoy, you know, being able to do after TIF? Um, one of it, it sounds like it's, um, you know, losing weight is a positive. Um, anything yeah. else that your patients have mentioned to you? Yeah, actually, uh, just today, uh, we had a patient come in that had the procedure and she was just happy to be able to sleep in the same bedroom as her husband again, because previously she was having so much acid reflux that she would burp and belch and even vomit throughout the night because of the reflux she was having. And now she's po eight weeks post-procedure, 
And she's now enjoying the company of her husband again. And she was so thankful that she even had the procedure that she, it was available because previously it wasn't even available. It wasn't an option. And um, so th that's something that's positive. And then on many patients, we have a lot of young people coming in now and having the procedure and they just love not having to take medications. They don't want to be on medications and um, they understand the long-term implications of reflux medications that are rare, but still there, not negligible. And they've had a lot of um, happiness with being able to discontinue the medication. Oh, I love hearing those stories. That's so wonderful. Um, I know that uh, you know, we're getting towards the end now of our, um, of our tip talk. Um, do you have any parting thoughts for our viewers or what would you say to someone uh, who is considering the TIP procedure? Um, what I would uh, say, lastly, is that in those people who are considering the TIF procedure, make sure you don't ignore symptoms because the real risk of ignoring a symptom is that you have increased risk for Barrett's esophagus, increased risk for ulcers, increased risk for esophageal cancer. And those risks are not negligible. They are real. And so I think uh, it's important that you talk to your provider early don't ignore symptoms, be compliant with whatever management plan you and your physician mutually decide upon. And if you do that, most times you will be successful in your journey. And uh, we welcome any patients that would love to see us in our practice televisit or otherwise, we'd be happy to see you. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Simeon. And thank you for joining us today. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.